Please open your Bibles, if you have one, to Genesis chapter 2. I'll remind you that we pause our study of the epistle to the Ephesians this morning to begin a five or six week, hopefully five, we'll see how I manage my time this morning, series entitled, We Are His Creatures, Answering Hard Questions About Life and Sexuality. And specifically, let me give you a roadmap of where we're going. Um, we're going to take five planned messages, if I can get through, I've got a lot to get through this morning, but um, if I can get through that, one of an introduction of two critical truths to answer issues dealing with abortion, homosexuality, and transgenderism. And then, in that order, over the following three weeks, we'll look at those three issues, following the pattern of, okay, understanding briefly what is the argument being made by the culture, what's the justification for this um, coming from the world? How do we biblically respond to that? And what, if anything, in there do we have to learn or apply for ourselves? And then the final fifth message would be, okay, how do we then live in this world um, that we disagree with on so many areas so significantly? That's, that's the overview plan. And where this came from, the genesis of this series actually started last year around graduation time. If you remember Pastor Daniel... Um, we'll come up and every year give our graduating, graduating um, seniors gifts of usually books. And I believe last year it was a study Bible, a personal Bible, and a copy of Nancy Piercy's Love Thy Body. And he gave a brief plug as to what it was about. And there was a large response from people coming up to him asking, what was that book? What's it about? And it indicated there was some uh, interest in the body. And certainly in the church today, these issues are more relevant than ever. So we've stocked the bookstore with a, a number of copies of this book. It's very helpful. Nancy Piercy has written a book on Christian worldview previously. She's a student of Francis Schaeffer, spent a number of years at Labrie, and has written a very insightful and, I think, helpful treatment dealing with, she covers abortion, um, she covers uh, homosexuality, transgenderism, and um, some other issues in here. And much of what I have to say this morning and much of what will follow in the series leans heavily on that work. Very, very, very helpful. Um, it's also available in Audible if, if you prefer listening to a book that way. So that's, that's the genesis of this series. This morning, my task is to try to uh, lay out two truths. One of, one of the, the things that was so helpful in this book and her analysis of this issue is finding two biblical truths that are being contradicted, or to flip it another way, two lies that the world is putting forward that undergird and go through and through those issues. And it might be helpful, I believe, to start by establishing the biblical truths that we'll use largely to respond to these issues. This morning is purely a positive argument. Two biblical truths that are important for us to wrap our heads around and grasp. And they, they come out of this one notion that we are his creatures. I really think if we can wrap our heads around just the truth that's in Genesis 2, we will largely have um, at our disposal the, the, the biblical truth claims, what God has said to understand and answer these things. So with that said, I'd like to begin. The notes, point number one, we are flesh and we are spirit. Now, let me pause here for a moment and explain to you the lie that I'm trying to counter, the lie that this truth is meant to push back against. And that is this notion that our culture is bought into today that pits the mind or the spirit or personhood against the body. 
So in today's um, view, what matters, what's consequential is the mind, the person, or what we call the spirit. And the, the important thing to grasp here is it's an immaterial category. They're taking the immaterial, and they're pitting it against the material. Most clearly seen, if you want an example of this, is in the arguments put forward for abortion. According to, let me get my quote here, according to uh, Justice Blackburn in writing his majority opinion for Roe versus Wade, this was the critical issue in abortion. Recognize the child in the womb is a living Human being. The child in the womb, according to Roe versus Wade and now U.S. law, does not have is personhood status. The question is, would the 14th Amendment, which guaranteed the protection of persons, the, the language of the 14th Amendment, no state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. So the, the challenge against abortion was, these are people. And the answer is, no, they're not. They're, they're human non-persons. So justice... Black Mum Black wrote, If this suggestion of personhood is established, uh, the case for a constitutional right to abortion, of course, collapses. For the fetus's right to life would then be guaranteed, especially by the 14th Amendment. So the recognition, we've got a living, breathing, not living, not breathing, we have a living human being, and, and as we have better and better understanding technologically and to see inside the womb, we understand better and better what's there, but because the child doesn't have certain um, intellectual faculties, reasoning abilities, cognitive awareness, self-awareness, at least we don't think the child does, then it's determined that the human being in the womb is not a person, and without personhood, they have no significance. This is a strange conclusion for a secular culture to come to, but the rationale works something like this. If you're a naturalist, if you're a materialist, if you think all there is in reality are atoms in motion then you've got to find some way to justify why the atoms sitting next to you, the atoms that you married, the atoms that you're raising, have more significance than the snow outside, the grass in the outside lawn. What makes these collection of atoms more significant than these? And so the unbelieving mind sees something wonderful in God's creation, namely thought and reason and personhood, and they conclude that, and that alone, is what grants dignity, value, and status. And so where those things are not present, you're simply left with a body. This is also the argument made for euthanasia. Um, When somebody reaches a certain stage of senility, they're said to no longer be a person, and those rights can disappear as well. Um, this, This is what I'm pushing back against. And so the biblical truth is... We are flesh and spirit. We are minds, and our mind is immaterial. Clearly, our, our spirits interface with our brains, but thought is fundamentally a spiritual activity. We think and reason in our hearts. Saving faith is not a function of brains in the first instance, but it's something immaterially we do. There's clearly an interface with our brains. But that is not all who we are. We are not souls who have bodies. We are actually and sold body. So let's take a look at the text in Genesis 2, and I'll try to show you what I'm talking about. Genesis 2, pick it up in verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So notice the equation. There's two components. 
There is dirt or dust. There's actually a word play. Adam means dirt or dust. And there's breath, which is the Hebrew word ruach, which can also mean spirit or soul. God breathes spirit or wind or breath into the man. And the union of the material component and the spiritual component, we read, he becomes a living creature, which means Prior to that union, he was not a living creature. When he was just a breath, he was not a living creature. When he was just a body, he was not a living creature. But God breathes the breath of life into them, dirt, and he becomes a living creature. So point A, we are created as a union of spirit and matter. We are created as a union of spirit and of matter. And the Bible stresses this union These things fit together. They're integrated. So David can commit sin and say in Psalm 32 that when I didn't confess my sin, spiritual issue, my body wasted away, physical consequence, because we are a psychosomatic union, a union of of flesh and spirit, of, of body and soul. This is seen most clearly in the fact that, point one, we die. When our body and spirit separate. So we get the formula of becoming a living creature in Genesis 2.7. But listen to James um, 2.26 is actually the right reference. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So body and spirit combined, the man became a living creature. And body and spirit separated death. Now it is true that our spirit, our soul... Our immaterial part gets a greater emphasis and a greater dignity when when our soul and our body separate. Um, We, in a sense, go with our soul. There are disembodied souls under the throne of God in Revelation. But the biblical emphasis is on the unity. And that's seen again, our next point, in the fact that ultimately all bodies and spirits will be reunited. There is a resurrection not just of the just, but of the unjust. What I mean is this. Death may separate, may rend apart body and soul, but that's a temporary state of affairs in all cases. The Apostle Paul speaks of this reality in the book of Acts 24.15, giving his defense, saying, having a hope in God with which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. One of the terrible realities of the doctrine of hell is that people will suffer bodily. Their body and soul will be cast into hell. We, we are this composite being. We are embodied souls. And, and the danger for us is to think we're just a spiritual reality. That's, that's the danger. We've got to push back. We've got to own the goodness and the reality of our enfleshment, of our embodiment. Which means next to our next point, we are bodies... We are our bodies, and our bodies are good. We are our bodies, and our bodies are good. What I'm saying is this. This is Jeremy. Jeremy's body is Jeremy. It's not the fullness of Jeremy. I'm also a spiritual being. But it's not Jeremy in a body. Jeremy is that union of body and soul. That's, that's the goodness of the creation. That's what sets us apart from the angels who are just spiritual beings. We are ensouled bodies. We are that union. And that is good. That is good. Now turn, if you will, to 1 Corinthians 6. 
This, this may seem like a somewhat esoteric point to be made, but I assure you, it has very clear and very negative results when it is not embraced. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we're going to see people who precisely because they do not believe this are engaging in gross forms of immorality, visiting prostitutes because of this error. So there's nothing new under the sun. The, the denial of the reality and the goodness of our bodies in the first century led to gross sexual sin and the morality, and it's part of the justification being made today. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, let's pick it up in verse 12. I believe here Paul is quoting the Corinthian slogan. There's a faction amongst the Corinthians who, who have a justification for frequenting prostitutes. And so their slogan, this is what the ESV puts it in quotation marks, indicating the translators also think this is their slogan. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. I'm under grace, not law. Don't give me your rules. Their next quote, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord. So get the logic here. Um, as, as best as we can tell, this is, this is bleed over from Platonic dualism. Uh, in, in the first century, as best as we can tell, Plato had taught that the, the world of the mind, the world of the logos and of thought, that was the pure, good, holy realm. And the physical world was the shadows on the wall of the cave. The physical world, by definition, was flawed, broken. The body was something to be endured, a burden to carry around until you were freed from it. And so something like that seems to have crept over. They've got this low view of the body. And so their argument is this. I have a natural appetite for food and for water. And it's not a very great ethical issue how and when I satisfy that. So I want to eat something, I eat something. I'm thirsty for a drink of water, I have a drink of water. Food for the stomach, stomach for food. There's a correspondence to my appetite and this thing that I consume. Well, guess what? My body has other appetites. And they're arguing... Because, of course, it's just the body that satisfying other bodily appetites are equally insignificant, inconsequential. And even if they are kind of embarrassing, after all, it's just our body and our body's broken and our body's sinful. And praise the Lord, I'm going to go to heaven someday and be without my body. And so we just sort of bear with it now. Because Paul's going to respond to their error, not simply by saying, stop it, don't visit prostitutes. He's actually going to affirm the goodness of the body. And so part of how we sort of put together what they're thinking is reverse engineering what Paul says to them. And so he goes on to say, yes, the food to the stomach, stomach for food, God will destroy both, meaning we will not be eating in the eschaton lest we grow weary, faint, and die. Even though there's a marriage separate line as a feast, the relationship of eating, and because we grow increasingly hungry and we grow faint and we die, that's going to be done away with. However... That's not the same reality as with other bodily appetites and desires. He says the body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. So your first blank here, the body is for the Lord. And he is for the body. God God is the designer of our bodies and he's a fan of them. And, And part of the... Reality of the physical resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is God saying the created order is good. I intend to redeem the created order as well. 
The Apostle Paul speaks of this in Romans 8 when he speaks of how the creation itself groans and eagerly awaits our resurrections for when we are transformed, so will the created order as well. Christ was not simply raised spiritually. The Lord is for the body. The body is for the Lord and for people who think that the body is fundamentally a bad thing, an embarrassing thing, a trivial thing. This has got to be... An amazing statement on Paul's part. The Lord is for the body. The body is for the Lord. Consequentially, second point here, what we do with our body, we do spiritually. Because we're united, you can't simply act spiritually or just act physically. But because you're an integrated whole, what your body does, your spirit does, what your spirit does, your body, you can't compartmentalize. And Paul goes on to make that point to them. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? As it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual morality. So Paul is pointing out the spiritual consequences of their union. They may think it's, it's a matter of no importance. Satisfying that particular hunger and thirst is equally inconsequential as it is to choosing to get a bite to eat. But he says, no, no, spiritual reality is taking place. You're uniting yourself with someone. You are in danger of uniting Christ with them. So, so stop and just understand, when we devalue the body, when we dishonor the body, when we treat the, our, our, our material part as unimportant, it can have the dress of sounding really spiritual. Really spiritual. You know, we want to just think of heavenly things and we won't be doing these things on earth, I mean, in heaven, so why don't we, you know, set them aside now? In fact, that's the very error they're going to get into in chapter 7. Interestingly, you can fall off, uh, off the table both sides. There's a ditch on either side. There's, there's, the, there's the libertine side that says the body is inconsequential, so do what you want with it. In chapter 7, there's people who are trying to live celibate married lives. This is the error that the church did embrace. Um, and asceticism, this is where priestly celibacy comes from. The early church fathers couldn't separate the carnality, sinfulness from sexual desire, so they just concluded it was all bad. And since we wouldn't be doing those types of things in the resurrection, let's just start now. And Paul has to say in 1 Corinthians 7, again dealing with their slogans, look at 7, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relationships with a woman, but because of temptation to sexual morality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And he goes on to speak what there needs to be a regularity in marriage of, of relations. It's not super spiritual to do that. And it can have an appearance of that. So here is, is, is clear evidence of the types of problems we can run into when we don't think of and appreciate and honor our, our, our physicalness, our bodies. And it's the same as today. You'll see in the coming weeks that the denial of this reality, the attempt to pit the mind or the spirit against the body, is what runs through abortion, homosexuality, transgenderism. And so we as Christians need to understand that we are an integrated whole. What we do with our body, we do spiritually. This brings us then to a conclusion. Now stay here, stay here at 1 Corinthians 6 and 7. And so we want to avoid then both of the errors that are possible, both the errors we see here. The first, reject, okay, the blank here, sorry is we must glorify God in our bodies. We must glorify God in our bodies. That's how Paul ends chapter 6. 
You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. If your body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body, if the Lord intends to resurrect, transform, and redeem your body as well, if he has plans for your body, he made your body, and it exists for him and not for your purposes, then the only conclusion is to glorify God in your body. So we want to avoid two errors. We want to reject licentiousness. We want to reject licentiousness. And your blank here is do not sin against your body. How much honor does your body have? How much honor has God bestowed upon your body? Paul makes another amazing statement here. Look at verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Paul is so bold as to speak of you and I sinning against our bodies. That's the level of dignity, worth, and value our bodies have. I'd be hard-pressed to sin against this podium. But Paul here says, I can sin against my body. And so when we embrace a sort of the body doesn't matter, do what you want with it attitude, you run in the risk of sinning against your body. Now, turn, if you will, over a few books of the Bible to Colossians chapter 2. For the other error, it's asceticism which is a philosophy coming out of, I think, Greek thought in, in the first century. Paul actually names it here. And it's, it basically, again, adopts this notion, spirit, thought, good, physical body, bad. Um, this is where the monastic tradition comes out of. And, and then the thought is this, that because spiritual reality is prime, because spiritual reality is essential, and because spiritual reality is what's most important, let us minimize, subjugate, dominate, restrain, and push down the fleshly, the bodily. And Paul has to speak to that. And he speaks to it pretty clearly here in chapter 2 of, of Colossians. I'm in Ephesians. Here we go. Look at verse 16, chapter 2, 16. The blank here, by the way, do not dishonor your body. So you can sin against your body. You can also dishonor. The dishonoring being giving it less honor than it is due, treating it as a bad thing, treating it as an embarrassing thing, a burden to be endured. Verse 16, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason with his sensuous mind, not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and its ligaments grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. Now get this, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So this type of logic thought, well, food can get you in trouble. Let's eat really bland food. Let's really only ever eat simply to nourish our bodies. Let's, let's intentionally deprive our bodies of any pleasure that we might experience for fear that that will pour gas in a fire, and before you know it, we'll just be running off lawlessly. Let's go retreat to a monastery. Let's flagellate our bodies with whips. Let's, let's, let's rein them in and restrain them. 
And in so doing, the logic is we will rein in the sinfulness of sin. The, the problem is they're looking for sin in the wrong place. Jesus insists it's out of the abundance of the heart, your immaterial being, that, that come forth wickedness and evil deeds. It's, it's not, notice here even in this passage, Paul distinguishes between body and flesh. When Paul talks about the flesh, he does not mean fundamentally the physical. He means that which is sinful, that which is fallen. Look at verse 23. Having indeed an appearance of wisdom and promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, which he sees as distinct from, there of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So, that's the other error. If we just are austere enough, if we're just harsh enough, if we're just restrained enough, and that error too crept into the early church. Paul talks in 1 Timothy about people who forbid certain foods, and he has to say, no, all these things are to be received with thanksgiving. God's world, his created world, is full of good things and good gifts. And they're all to be received with joy in the right season and in the right way. Nothing is to be refused. Those are the two errors. One error sees the body as trivial and unimportant, do what you want with it. The other views the body as a negative or a bad thing, an embarrassing thing, a burden. And we as Christians need to embrace the reality. We are flesh and we are spirit. And God intends for us to glorify him in our bodies. Let's glorify him in our bodies. The author of Hebrews in chapter 13 makes it clear, explicitly clear. The marriage bed is to be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. Which is to say, within marriage, within its proper place, relations are holy and pure and good. Contrary to what many of the early church fathers thought. This is God's stamp saying, these things are good when taken in their right season and in the right way. So that's the first Reality, we've got to push back against personhood theory. We've got to push back against the notion that your mind, who you perceive yourself to be, that is where you get your value, that is where you get all of your identity, that is where you get everything of who you are. That without that, you're just a body of no value and of no consequence. That's, that's the first point. We are flesh and we are spirit. There's another error that is, goes through the, the secular mind, Another error that I think we can also, if we're not careful, be, be guilty of letting slip in, and that is this. We are made, and we are obligated. If you turn back again to Genesis chapter 2, it's staring us right in the face. In Genesis chapter 2, it's clear. Then the Lord God formed the man. Who made man? God. But it means to be a creature is to be made. There is a creator over creatures. And it's clear we are his creatures. And by virtue of having a creator, we have an authority. Authority and authorship go together. Now what I'm pushing back against here is the current notion of social contract theory, which you may not have heard of and doesn't ultimately matter if you know know what that is. What matters is you know the truth is pushing back against it. A short history of this is coming out of the Reformation and the, and the Renaissance, thinkers like Locke and Hume and Rousseau are struggling to come up with a justification, a foundation for, for society, for governments, for, for obligations and ethics. 
And one of the consequences of the religious wars and the Reformation and the invention of the scientific method and the Renaissance was a growing skepticism of these things coming from God. They, they got tired of the divine right of kings. And so they're looking for a different way of understanding man's relationships and obligations to each other. Um, and in their attempt to come up with a, a clean slate foundation, they push man back away from such things, get to a state of nature. You may have heard of natural law theory. Um, the societal contract theorist imagined sometime in the misty past, prior to all civilization, when humans supposedly existed in an original, primordial, pre-social condition. They called this the state of nature. There, there was no marriage, no family, no church, no state, no civil society. All that existed were disconnected, autonomous individuals driven purely by self-preservation. They were the atoms that pre-exist all social institutions. Again, they're, they're coming off of Newtonian physics as well. Let's take the individual atom, the part, understand it in its isolation, and then move forward into integration. And what they concluded was, if humans originally pop up like this with no natural obligations, then where do society and relationships come from? They answered, they're created by choice. Like Newton's atoms, individuals come together and bond in various arrangements where they find that doing so advantages, advances their interests. And of course, if these bonds and relationships are created by choice, the implication is they can be recreated by choice. We can redefine them any way we want. Secondly, this means that the sole source of moral obligations is the individual will. So let me just restate what I just read. If there is no God who made us, if we're coming up with a natural law theory to understand society, and we imagine man without anyone else, they're saying moving forward, whatever arrangements he enters into, whatever relationships man enters into, they're done through consent, voluntarily. And then that becomes the basis of all human relationships, of the family, of society, and of the government. Now, there's something there. That, that, there's, there's useful things in that. Absolutely. What makes the difference ethically between fornication and rape? Consent. What makes the difference between a loan and theft? Consent. What makes the difference between employment and slavery? Consent. I mean, that, that's all true. However... For these theorists and for people in our society today, this is the only basis for obligation in ethic. I'll read the quote. Its basic tenet is that there, no individual can have an obligation to which they have not consented. I'll say it again. One of the consequences of taking this view, social contract theory, and making it, totalizing it, this is the only way obligations are formed, is to conclude no individual can have an obligation to which they have not consented. This vision presented in terms of, is always presented in terms of liberating the individual from oppression and convention, tradition, class, and the past. The contract was seen as the only appropriate basis for a free society because it's based on choice and thus preserves the original autonomy enjoyed in the hypothetical state of nature. By the way, speaking of the state of nature, one critic of it made this observation that these views are the views of childless men who must have forgotten their childhood. Because, of course, no one comes into this world in a state of nature. You come into this world through another human. And unless that other human cares for you and feeds you, you die. We, society at some level is an essential element to life. 
We don't come into the world that way. It doesn't work. Parents don't ask newborns if they'll consent to be fed or changed. We we change them. Um, And so the other reality is this devastating is that this contractual, contractual view of, of relationships leads to a contractual view of marriage and the family, and it has disastrous consequences. In particular, it has led to the massive abandonment of children. I no longer consent to raise you. I want to leave. I no longer consent to bear you. I no longer consent to stay in this marriage. See, if consent is the only basis of obligation, then what happens when I no longer consent? Well, we see in the world around us that. And of course, this is the argument most clearly seen. I'll use abortion just because that's where we're going next week. What's, what's, the, what's the counter-argument? The, the pro-death position doesn't call itself the pro-death position. They call themselves pro-choice. And they champion a woman's right to choose. It comes right out of this line of thinking. This line of thinking is hardwired into our American DNA. This political theory is written into our Constitution. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's to show how, how deep it is. I, I think that our former government seems to have borne some of the best fruit out there. But we've all heard this. The, the legitimacy of human government is based upon the consent of the people governed. That's not true. God's government wasn't based its authority didn't derive from the consent of the people governed. Nebuchadnezzar, as God's instrument, did not derive his authority, his power, from the consent of the people governed. Is it a good thing when people consent to be governed? Seems to be. I'm a fan of it. Is it a good thing? Yes. But if you want to absolutize that and say, without consent, you have no authority, that's false. There are non-consensual obligations. I'll name a few. Children have a non-consensual obligation to honor and obey their parents. Parents have an obligation, whether they consent to it or not, to rear and care for their children. We have an obligation to our government. We can vote. My children haven't voted. They still are obligated to honor the government. And whereas you enter into marriage through consent, whether you continue to consent or not is irrelevant according to God's word. You've made commitment, you now have an obligation. But our culture has a really hard time processing non-consensual obligations. And we need to stop being embarrassed about this. We're embarrassed of authority. Our culture hates authority. And we as Christians need to understand that these are things that God has instituted. So we've got to move through here quickly. Genesis 2, this should jump right out at you. Really obvious, low-hanging fruit. Genesis 2, he's the creator, and we are the creature. He's the creator, and we are the creature, which means we are not autonomous. Autonomy comes from two Greek words, autos, self, nomos, law, self-governance, self-rule. We're not autonomous. We are not autonomous. We are owned. We are owned this is, this is the assumptions of Scripture. God creates the man and the woman in the garden, and God does with the man and the woman as he sees fit. And a few chapters later, when sin spreads, we read in Genesis 6, the Lord regretted that he had made the man on the earth. He grieved his heart, so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created. 
God assumes since he made man, he has the right to do with man what he wants, including flood the world and kill them all. Now, tied up in that is an assumption of ownership and property, even. We are not autonomous. Our cultures insist we are. Therefore, I can't be forced to do anything against my will. I can't be forced to have any obligation that I don't consent to. As Christians, we've got to get from the get-go. That is patently false. We're all under obligation and beholden to a God who has made us. Let me read a quote from a John Frame. We live in a world obsessed with autonomy. As with Adam and Eve in the garden, people today do not want to bow the knee to someone other than themselves. The Lord's lordship confronts and opposes autonomy from the very outset. It demands our recognition that all things belong to him and all are subject to his control and authority. That demand is unacceptable to those who are outside of Christ. And to some extent, even believers chafe when the demand is clearly made. We're so hardwired, no taxation without representation, that if we're not careful, we, we sort of expect God needs to, at the very least, run his plans by us. At the very least, get our approval. He, he's not elected God. He's, he's not up for re-election. He doesn't need our vote. That's the very nature of dealing with a God. You're dealing with an absolute Now, the good news is the God who is, is good and right and just and holy. But he is the maker, and we are the creature. He is the creator, we are the creature, we are owned. Point two, as our maker, he has fashioned each of us as he chose. This is going to get more into our later weeks, but not only did God make us, but he made us as he saw fit. He made us as he chose to make us, which means your physical body and your makeup come from his hand for his purposes. So when God tells Moses, I want you to go speak to Pharaoh, and Moses offers up this compound. I'm not very good at talking. God says, I know that I made you, right? Exodus 4.11. And the Lord said, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? If you were born blind, the Lord made you that way. Short, tall, male, female. God claims responsibility for how we've been made in our conditions in life. In 1 Samuel 1.5, Samuel's mother, Hannah, we read this, that her husband, Elkanah, gave Hannah a double portion. Why? Because he loved her. The Lord had closed her womb. God God makes some people barren. He makes some people seeing. The man born blind by the pool. This is for the glory of God. He he makes us as he sees fit. Not only does he make us in general, but he makes us in specific. We are owned. We are fashioned. And so the Bible says things like this in Isaiah 29, 16. You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? That the thing made should say to its maker, he did not make me. Or the thing formed, say to him who formed it, he has no understanding. Which is to say, God made a mistake when he made me the way he made me. The potter did a poor job with this pot. God rebukes such sentiments. He is God. He is the creator. We are the creature. And he makes man and fashions him as he chooses 
Paul makes this point extensively in 1 Corinthians 12, but how God gifts and equips the body, some honorable, some dishonorable pieces, some eyes, some toes, some fingers. And that variation is part of his glory. Part, point B, we've got to move. And I know there's a lot here. This will be online. You can check these, re- these references. You can, and some of this, much of this will be repeated in the coming weeks. Not only is he the creator and we are the creature, he is the lawgiver and we are the subject. So I'm just moving organically from the notion of author to authority. The first point is you are made. You are a creature. I am a creature. I am part of his creation. I'm not autonomous. I'm not my own. And I've been made in a particular way according to his purposes. Second, he's the lawgiver and I'm the subject. He makes the rules. We don't make the rules. And and this again confronts us in Genesis 2, right out of the gate, with no apology. He commands us as he pleases. So what does God do? He makes the man out of the dust of the ground in Genesis 2.7. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden east. And he put the man there and asked him if he'd be willing to tend it. Nope. He put him there to tend it. Don't miss the subtle implication. What God makes, he can direct. It's implicit in the text. It becomes explicit when God, before the fall, gives them explicit rules. Not just a general, hey, take care of this garden, but jump ahead to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it. Here's work before the fall. Those of you who think work's just a result of the fall. Nope. Pre-fall, work. No asking, I got a job, Adam. You want to negotiate a price with me? How much of an hourly wage I'm going to pay you? He's got work for him. No, no request. Now, God's purposes are good. I don't want you to think I'm trying to paint God as some brutish bear. But notice God is acting with his property, with his possessions, with his creature, with his creature and his creation. And there's, there's no apology for the fact that God, as author and as creator, has the right to do with and direct his creature as he sees fit. He puts Adam in a garden to work it. And then he gives him the rules. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. The day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so, so God makes the man, and he gives the man work to do, and he gives the man rules to keep. He places obligation on him. And, and nowhere does he say, are you okay with that, Adam? Do you agree? Do you consent? Is this agreeable to you? Now, we're to see the goodness of God. God's going to form a helpmeet for him, a wife. We're to see that all that God is doing is good and right. He's a good king. He's a wise king. But he is a sovereign king. And he is not taking an opinion poll or taking votes. He commands us as he pleases. And this isn't just an Old Testament thing. Jesus comes along and in John 14, 15 says, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Jesus says, I got commandments for you, and I expect you to keep them. And if you love me, you will. No apology. No, well, if you agree to this, I'm I'm your savior, and I'm your king, and I have commands. And if you love me, you'll keep them. You'll keep them. He commands us as he pleases. Point two, he does not need our consent. To issue our commands. And again, this is partly, I think, why we chafe and the world chafes so much at the doctrine of hell. That God would impose a penalty 
for man's failure to obey commands that he never agreed to. I mean, we live in a world today where children are divorcing their parents. There's a man, I believe, in India suing his parents for begetting him. Basically, I didn't want to be made, and you brought me into this awful world. You owe me. That's the logic of, of social contract theory, absolutized, gone to seed. And again, don't, don't get me wrong. Social contract theory is useful in limited applications in, in places, but as an absolute system of ethics and obligations, it's worthless. It's worse than worthless. It's damaging. It's dangerous. Because we begin to think we have these rights that are inalienable, and no one can tell us what to do without our consent. That's going to get you in an awful lot of trouble if you really believe that without exception or qualification. He does not need our consent. This is the basis for why the Apostle Paul can speak of his gospel ministry in Acts chapter 17. He's preaching. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. The assumption, again, is absolute authority. It's not just an invitation. I mean, yes, we can invite people to come to Christ. God commands you to believe. God commands all people everywhere to repent and believe. You're invited to do so as well, but he commands you to. Because he's king. He's God. That's what it means to be God. Even when Jesus begins to describe our relationship as his friends, I no longer call you slaves, but I call you friends in John 15. It's a very interesting type of friendship. He still has commands for us. Now he tells us why as well. So even though Jesus says, I, I, I no longer call you slaves or servants, but, but friends, the shift is I still direct you and I still command you, but a slave doesn't know his master's will. I'll tell you why I'm having you do what I'm having you do. But there's still no negotiation over this fundamental principle. I call the shots. That's why the earliest confession of the church that Jesus is Lord carries with this notion. He is my Lord. He's my master. Claiming Jesus as Lord is claiming yourself as having a master, having a Lord, being someone's subject. The fall was about the rejection of this principle. No, I will make my own rules. No, I will make my own law. No, I will do as I see fit. And it led to the fall and damnation and the curse. And God offers us in Jesus Christ pardon and reconciliation. But what does it mean to be reconciled with God? But to reassume our proper relationship. He's the creator. We're the creature. He's the lawgiver. We're the subjects. Point C, he is the potter. We are the pots. So this all comes together. Here's the so what. If he made us as he saw fit, if he knit us together in our mother's womb, if he made us seeing or mute or dumb or short or tall or good with math or good at athletics or however he's made us, and if he can direct us, then two implications follow. One, embrace being who and what he has made you. Jonathan Edwards, living about the time of these thinkers, took this notion and simply incorporated social contract theory. He said, okay, you want to think this way. Here's the fundamental obligation of a creature. Consent to be. He wrote a treatise. The virtue is consent to being. 
as he was framing Christian ethics in a Lockean sense, John Locke sense. I'll read the quote. Um, this is from someone summarizing Edwards, because if I read Edwards, it's really hard to read. <laughs> so I'll read to you someone synthesizing Edwards in, in this book. Edwards articulates moral agency in terms of the purpose of humanity. We are created to be moral agents, and to the extent that we agree with God about our design, we move towards our ultimate purpose. We express this agreement through consent to being in general. In other words, the fundamental question, if you want to place it there in the garden, and for you and for me is this, God makes Adam, says, hi, I'm God, here's what I want you to do, and there's, I suppose, a moment where Adam could say, I don't want to do that. Will you, will I consent to be the creature? Or will we say, no, I must be free and sovereign. I must make the rules and call the shots. The fundamental issue in the fall, that rebellion, no, I will do as I see fit. Or will we be what we are made to be? Will we consent to our being? Much of what's going on in homosexuality and abortion and transgenderism is the refusal, the rejection. No, I refuse. If I don't consent to be a man, I'm not going to be a man. If I don't consent to this pregnancy, I'll end it. If I don't consent to, to how my body is wired and, and designed and, and who I correspond to and I want something else, I'm going to do that. But of course, this goes beyond those three topics to all areas of life, right? If God's made you to be, and, and I talk, as a pastor, I talk to people, I know that many of us struggle with discontent over who and what we are. And we wish we could be other than who and what we are. Be in different places in life than where we are. There, there, are, there are people who strongly desire, oh God, change who I am and how you've made me. We too need to embrace who God has made us, where he's placed us, how he's gifted you, how he's not gifted you. That means that's true for the the child with difficult parents. That's true for the single who wants to be married. That's true for the married person in a difficult marriage. That's true for anyone who, who wants to be other, different than we are. God has placed us. He apportions our times and our places And he is wise, and he is the potter, and we are the pots. He knows what he's doing. He calls the shots, and our job is to submit and embrace and trust him with that. And so it's it's true as the answer for abortion and homosexuality and transgender, and it's true for us as well. The temptation for us, of course, is to preach that hard against the sins we don't struggle with and to give ourselves all sorts of compounds about being under grace and not under law for the things we have to do. And so if this is the answer for the, for the Canaanites out there, it is first and foremost the answer for the Christians in here. He is the potter. We are the pots. Embrace being who and what he has made you. So listen to Isaiah 45, 9 through 10. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or, your work has no handles, which is to say, you've made it poorly. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Of course, the apostle Paul famously takes this and asks the rhetorical question in Romans 9. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me this way? 
has the potter no right over the clay to make the same lump, one vessel for honorable and another for dishonorable use. And then this is this, I don't want to, I don't want to blunt the, the, the point here. God says he's a potter and potters don't ask pots what they want to be done, what they, what they want him to do with them, how he wants them to make, he makes them. And when they displease him, he shatters them and he molds other clay and he makes pots for his purposes. And God says, fundamentally, ultimately, I'm God, and I make what pleases me. Now, that's, that's not the only bit of the story. There's more. He, he wants to be in a relationship with us. He, he, he adopts us. He, he's a father to us. There's so much more, but there's not anything less than that. There's more than that to who God is and our relationship with him, but there's not less. And when we're tempted... To, to raise our fist. Now, I want to make this clear. There's all the difference in the world between going to a father and saying, help. You made me this way, and, and I, I'd be other. If you're born blind, take that to God. There's a brokenness in your blindness. But even though God forms you that way, he makes it clear. I'm, I make blind. That, that it doesn't mean accepting. It doesn't mean not offering it to God. Change that. Please change that. If you're in a difficult marriage, Lord, help straighten my marriage out. If you want to get married, Lord, bring a husband, bring a wife. If you're barren, Lord, bring children. Like bring, bring those prayers to him. He has a father's heart for us. He's made that clear. But what we cannot do is raise our fist and say, why did you make me this way? Fix it. Then, then you get the answer of Isaiah in Romans 9. Our, our world today insists if there is a God, he's got a lot of explaining to do. And they don't understand what God means and who he is. So we need to embrace being who and what he has made you. Second, submit yourself to the Lord and to his will. Turn your Bibles to 1 John. One one of the realities you're going to see over the coming weeks is that in large part, this truth bearing out, the answer to the world, to the culture, is there is a God. You, You are beholding to him whether you agree with that or not, whether you consent to that or not. And it is your responsibility to embrace his will and to obey him. And that is going to be very, very difficult for some people to hear. I think, honestly, it's difficult for all of us to hear. And so, again, we need to lead the way. Judgment needs to begin in the household of God. We're to tell to someone terrified of continuing a pregnancy and what that might mean for their life and the shame they might incur and, 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 and their future and say, no, no, there's a living God. And he, he declares what that child in your womb is and he declares what your responsibility is if we're going to say that, then we need to take our own medicine. Because this notion of obeying God is fundamental with what it means to be reconciled. We're not reconciled with him by obeying him, but we're reconciled with him to obey him. First John chapter 2, verse 3. By this we know that we've come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar. The truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. Turn to chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. And we want to stop right there. There's justification by faith. We believe Jesus Christ, and therefore we're born of God. By this we know the love of the children of God, that we love God and obey his commandments. 
For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? If we're going to, when the world asks us, tell them hard realities that they have been taught from birth are not true. They've been told from birth, you can be whatever you want to be. Don't let anyone tell you you can't be what you want to be. You can't do what you want to do. And we're like, well, I'll, I'll tell you you can't because God says you can't. And we of all people need to be embracing that. I, I think what makes the world have a hard time hearing it from us is when they see our hypocrisy. For us to champion that marriage is holy and sacred, it oftentimes doesn't look that way in our own lives. And so before we move ahead with this series and, and deal with these issues, we need to take our own medicine. We need, to, we need to embrace who and what and how God has made us, and we need to embrace his commandments and his law in our lives. And then we can talk to our neighbor as those who have embraced and are embracing who and what we are, as those who are striving to obey him, that yes, we're all under authority. And yes, we're all under a God to whom we're beholding. I ask the worship team to come forward for a closing song, a fitting song. We will sing, I Surrender All. We can talk more about this in the ABF in the coming weeks.